In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. There's a significant uh, problem with uh, people having obesity in Ireland. We expect if things aren't don't change very quickly that up to 90% of uh, people in Ireland will be uh, will have uh, overweight by the uh, year 2030. So it's a huge problem. Something like 26% of the population will be classified as obese, which means they have a very high body mass index or very high level of weight compared to their height, if that makes sense. You treat people who have uh, obesity issues are you seeing more and more people come to you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's a good thing in some senses because people are becoming more aware of the issues, uh, including not blaming themselves so much uh, for, for their problems with overweight and they're seeking help. And this is one of the things we're trying to encourage. People often take up to six years on average, according to some of the research, before they'll seek help for having obesity. And in that time, their health can decline in significant ways. There's a lot of stigma around having overweight and having obesity. So that also prevents people from seeking help. But we're trying to change the message around that and that's one of the really important aspects is trying to reduce the stigma even among health professionals uh, in relation to people with overweight or obesity uh, and make sure that we're having you know respectful conversations with people and not maintaining this message of losing weight as being the main focus it is an important part of it but health gain is something we're really trying to focus on and ideas around diets and calories in and calories out really don't serve people well it's a very simplistic approach to things which really just in my view stigmatizes people so we need to move away from that as i say and focus on health gain rather than weight loss per se Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, one in four people experience mental health issues throughout our world. On Friday, David O'Connor highlighted Aware Mental Health Week for the Pat Kenny Show. When did your um, depression interludes first begin, do you think? Yes, I suppose it's quite long-winded, but I suppose to be brief... um, I, I, this all started, I, I was bullied in school, um, which I kind of accepted at the time. So you're going right back to like when I was 12 years of age. Mm. Um, and sort of at the time, you sort of took that because you saw it happening on the telly, you saw it happening around you, you saw it happen to others. And, and being like picked on for your physical appearance, and I was the, you know, very to come as the chubby kid. I, I just thought I was playing the role I was supposed to play. That was your, that yeah. was your fit in society. And sort of to culminate with that then at 14, I was I was actually mugged. I had a syringe held up to my neck. So to be low and confident and a little bit unsure of yourself anyway, um, I think one of those events or one of those alone would, would sort of knock you anyway. But the two together um, certainly sort of played a part in my development, certainly in my later teens and sort of you get to that stage of your life where you're hitting college and there's just change coming in your life. So I think sort of what happened, it, it was sort of mid-20s where... I started reflecting back upon kind of growing up, you reflect back in school and what you'd been through. And I guess, I, I suppose I just got very angry where you're kind of looking back because you're like, how did I actually let people do this to me? You know, like, and why did I let this happen? And obviously you'd moved on so much, you couldn't point the finger at anybody or, or blame anyone. So I, I suppose I, t- I turned that anger and that shame and that hate into myself. And... What sort of developed from there was this sort of debilitating practice of just knocking myself down. Um, you know, really intense stuff, really purposeful and conscious. Um, quite the sort of psychological self-harm over the course of six or seven years. Um, that sort of led me to, on two occasions in my life, where I was suicidal, basically. I just sort of lost faith in myself, lost faith in people. And I, I'm conscious, but I, I don't want to scare people listening. But at the same time, like, this, this is the reality. Um and it's varying scales for a lot of people, and this is where it has led me. So I suppose probably from the last, I'm 37 now, and I think maybe for the last 10, 11 years or so, it's it's just been, the, the sort of decision I made, and this is simplified, is like, right, I, I've spent all this time sort of ripping myself apart. What if I can bring this in the other way and try and build myself up consciously? And even if I make it halfway back, I'm going to be in a better place. So... That's kind of what I've been trying to do the last sort of 10 years or so. It's not easy. Everybody's hit with bad days and I get plenty of them. Um, But sort of with a mix of, you know, going to counselling, being open about what I'm going through and what I'm experiencing with with family and with close ones, um, you know, keeping myself active. All the the good stuff you'd hear about, like just trying to keep myself right day by day. 
um, is sort of what I just sort of practice. And I keep saying that, that's sort of a philosophy of mine, it's like day by day. And I, and I think when you consider what we've all been through sort of the last 18 months or so, it's, it's certainly become more sort of relevant. Yeah. Um, did, did, you find, did, did you find the pandemic particularly difficult or the coping mechanisms which you've developed? And for you, it appears it's all about physical exercise, setting yourself challenges and fulfilling those challenges. Was the pandemic difficult or did the established coping mechanisms you have actually help you through? Yeah, and it's it's interesting you say that because at the start of it, it was something that was said to me by a lot of people around me. They were kind of, oh, we'll have to keep an eye on, on Dave and I'll make sure this doesn't... Whereas at the start, particularly, where... Now, listen, don't get me wrong, Pat, it was overwhelmed as anybody. and it, But certainly at the beginning, it's something that I used to sort of sit down and take that time to sort of sort of break down everything and, and reflect and, and bring yeah. it into the day by day. And, and I think everything was so uncertain. I'm talking day by day. I think everything was changing by the hour back then. So now you're 100% right. Utilising the tools, whether it was the case of the, the cognitive uh, behaviour therapy, which I find very helpful, um, journaling, taking a little bit of time to sort of write, sit down and have a little think about your day and, and your thoughts. And, and the other big one is you're staying off the phone as well. So, no, you're 100% right. It certainly did help. It, it caught me eventually, as I think it did with everybody. Um, it's sort of later on in the year, uh, which was sort of a culmination of other things as well, like work stress and yeah. a lot of stuff that was going on. But no, you're 100% right. It is something I feel did kind of stand for me at, at the time. What an impressive guy. Mental health advocate David O'Connor from The Pat Kenny Show. Adriana's on the line too. You proposed to your partner, is that right? I did, yeah, uh, 33 years ago. Uh, we're 31 years married. And how, so it, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it went, I was going to say, how did it go down? It obviously went down well then. Yeah, he said he was chuffed that I asked him, you know. So, yeah, he's a good man. I wasn't letting him slip through my fingers too easily. <laughs> <laughs> how did, um, did you get much reaction from people when you told them 30, 30 odd years ago, Adrienne, that you, you proposed? Not really. I'm the eldest of eight girls and my father was just relieved there's finally someone in the family making a move, you know. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I know, people are just delighted. Um, anyone that knows him, uh, they like him as well. Any of my side of my family and that, they like him. So, it's just, it's worked out well. Um, the whole thing about, you know, men feeling emasculated if a, if a woman, you know, or women take this away from them, that it's kind of the thing that they have left to do. What do you say to that? Nonsense. <laughs> you know, um, like women have the vote now. We're educated. We have our own jobs. You know, it's an equal partnership. So you should be quite comfortable. You know, if whoever wants to make the move, make it. You know, do, to ask the question. You know, make sure you're on the same page. Better to find out than just letting time roll on and on. Yeah. Tell us about the proposal, Adrian. Uh, now, I didn't get down on bended knees. I was actually sitting across the table in a restaurant and just asked him. And he said, yeah. Then I started going, are you sure? Do you really want it? Are you sure? <laughs> you're, give, you're, you're giving a bit of a get out clause at the end. <laughs> a bit of a disclaimer yeah. to go with it. Um, Fergal, you're still with us from, from intro matchmaking. Um, proposals by women. If a guy, never mind Irish guys, feels emasculated by this, then they aren't ready for marriage, let alone modern life. Completely ridiculous as Tim and Galway. A um, lot of listeners on the same page there as Tim and Caroline and Adrienne. What do you say to them? Oh, I 100% agree with Adrienne and, uh, and your other guests there. Like, women are right to do this. They need to take it out of the guy's hands. Guys just need to do better. Guys just need to make a plan. There's a huge amount of Peter Pans out there and commitment-phobic guys that, whereas they're in a relationship, they still just don't progress it to the next stage. And they need to like, realise what age they're at, what stage they're at in life, and actually make a plan about where they want to be. Because I've more often than I care to remember, I've got 39-year-old women calling up saying, I've gone out with Tom for the last, you know, six years. And then he tells me he's no longer interested in, in, in long-term relationships or marriage. And she's thinking, you've just wasted the best part of my, of my 30s. So what's going on here? Now, there, there is two of them in it, though, at the same time. Mary needs to talk to Tom, and Tom needs to talk mm. to Mary. And they need to say, okay, what's our plan? I am 34, I am 35, I am 36. I do want kids in my life. Is that where you are as well? Are we on the same page? But there's, like, there's, how much dragging, kicking, and screaming is a woman supposed to do 
until she realises actually maybe this guy isn't actually right for me. Well, I have, a, I have a text in here, Fergal, from another listener who says, um, I've been with my partner for 15 years. We've two kids together. I want to get married now, but I'm nervous about bringing it up. Oh, my God. 15 years. Come on. I mean, <laughs> you know, people need to realise that, look, you know, they deserve to know. Everyone deserves to know where we are at. Like I had a person join intro um, a few months back and she purely just joined to make the guy jealous. So he calls over, she calls the next day then to cancel her membership. He called over to the house right after she told him she joined intro and he proposes to her and she says yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's going to, that's going to be a great, uh, a great success yeah. story down the line. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. On Friday, Barbara Scully invited Susan Andrews from the SSAI to do a home energy audit. And there were plenty of surprises. Here's a short clip. This is the living room. And this is where we spend most of the time. And as you can see, I have an open fire, mm-hmm. which I hope you're not going to tell me is a really bad idea because I love my open fire. You're making faces <laughs> at it. <laughs> I love my open fire. And this is the thermostat for the heating, which I thought I was being very clever in getting a few years ago because it's one of those smart things. Now, I don't have the app on my phone, though, but you're meant to be able to control it from when you're out and about and all the rest of it. It's in the living room. Yeah. Is that a good idea? I know you like your fire, but no, I don't I... like it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. okay. Well, unfortunately, you're losing 70% of your heat through an open fireplace. So they're really not that energy efficient. Um, my advice would be, uh, no, you shouldn't use a fire. Um, and really, if you want to block up drafts in your house, you know, a very quick way of saving heat is um, chimney bloom. Chimney balloon. Chimney balloon that you can get in a hardware store. Which way did you come in? Off you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll have to think about that. Uh, my mental health has to come into it as well. So I'll think about that. But I will take on board what you say. My thermostat is in here. Your thermostat and is in here with your open fire. Yeah. That's not, not ideal either. No, no. So, and I think you had said to me earlier that, you know, this room, your living room gets very warm. Yeah. But the rest of your house gets kind of cold. Mm. And the reason for that is your thermostat is setting the temperature for your living areas. So that's going to include your kitchen and your downstairs rooms. So when you have a fire burning, it's giving a false heat yeah. to the thermostat. So it's, it's shutting down the heat in the rest of your house, basically. Yeah. So that's why the rest of your rooms are colder. So what I'd actually suggest is that you move that thermostat out of your living room and um, generally speaking you want to have your thermostat somewhere where there isn't an additional heat source so kitchens aren't ideal either because you have your oven and that's generating sure. more heat and um, because you use your fire i mean if you didn't have a fireplace the living room would be perfect because you do then i would suggest the hallway now yeah. others would say also that you know opening the front door causes a draft yeah. and that reduces the temperature but in your case it's probably the best okay well that then explains the other problem because i know i was to look at what my thermostat was set at yeah so can you tell me what temperature your thermostat is okay at? prepare yourself now to be <gasps> shocked okay wow it's mediterranean <laughs> don't know why should, should to i this. say 32 degrees <laughs> Okay, 20 degrees. We would normally say turn it from 21 to 20 degrees and you're going to save 10% on your energy bills. So you can just imagine what you're going to save on your energy bills. Now see, it never gets to 32, clearly, right? So it must do in here because that's why it's shutting off your radiators in your other rooms and they're cold. I don't think it does. Um, (laughs) Okay, maybe. You're going to kill me when you go out into the dining room as well and you see when we're talking about drafts because we have a cat flap because we have a lot of cats and we also have a puppy who demolished the cat flap so we now have a large hole in the back door but anyway, Ella, as they say. Now, again, as I mentioned to you at the beginning this house was built in the kind of late 60s yeah. so insulation wasn't a big deal. Our attic, I believe, is um, insulated just on the floor. Is that enough? Well... Um, I suppose what we've been talking about all the quick tips that people can do straight away to reduce those energy bills, make, but still have a warm, cosy home. Um, but yes, you really want to look at what we call a home energy upgrade. And a good st- look, if you don't know where to start, we would always say, look at getting a BEOR assessment of your home. And that's where we have a list of registered BEOR assessors that come out to your house. They do a very non-intrusive assessment of your home, a bit more detailed. They make you feel as bad as you made me feel about the fire bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to to tell you where you're you're losing all your heat, uh, where there's over, you know, demand on your energy. um, And they're going to tell you how. They'll 
give you what's called an advisory report and it's a personalized roadmap that's going to help you make your home more energy efficient, reduce that energy uh, consumption. Barbara Scully there reporting for The Heart Shelter with Kieran Cudahy. Well, at the same time, I would imagine it might be useful for the public to know what the various pieces of advice the government are are, uh, receiving and therefore have some sort of insight into what eventual decisions they might make. I think that's the, the, the crucial issue. Um, and I think that certainly in the UK, there were times when that transparency wasn't adequate. Um, you know, I think that r- really the situation we have is that we elect ministers, we elect a government to make policy decisions, and it's right that they should, and that sci- you know, that shouldn't be devolved to scientists. But it's also important that people know what the scientific advice is, so that if ministers choose to ignore it um, or choose to follow it, then, you know, it's then for the public to decide, are these the sorts of leaders we want? Do we want leaders who will ignore their scientists or who will do exactly what their scientists will say? So that's the crucial point. And I think um, that... Th- Really, the pandemic has shown that this issue of transparency uh, is is crucial and I think needs more work, actually. I don't think it was there was enough transparency at some stages. Mm. It's a difficult one, though, from, from I suppose, a, a perceptual and a political point of view. I mean, I think possibly in Ireland, the experience was that uh, our chief medical officer, Tony Holan and Neffet was the, uh, the organisation we had that was similar to SAGE. They leaked a lot. Uh, basically, everybody knew what the Neffet advice was to government because it was leaked to the media. Uh, and, you know, they'd be... but at the same time, it was transparent in the sense that we knew when the government was taking the advice and when the government was ignoring the advice and then people could make up their minds uh, about uh, the outcome of that. It does create a bit of a tension, though. Uh, it's a far from ideal situation if we have to rely on leaks to yeah. know what the scientific advice was. I think that's really not ideal. And I think that one of the things the pandemic has suggested to me is that the scientific advisors need to be given more independence, need to be able to go to the public and explain what the advice is. They are in a very difficult situation because, you know, scientific advisors are civil servants. Their job, their duty is to support the government. Mm. Um, But I think that there there is also a broader duty there. If you're a chief medical officer, then you also have a duty uh, concerned with public health. And I think it's important that you be able to say what your advice is so that it's, as you say, very clear rather than, you know, clear just through leaks and rumours, that it's very clear to people if ministers are deciding to put that advice to one side. Yeah. Plus also, though, could it be argued that Okay, a government says, right, you can, uh, uh, you're, you're our, our scientific advisor saying a, cl- a climate change scenario. Uh, you can make public statements as to what your advice is to us. Doesn't that somehow draw the scientist into the political process, whether they like it or not? Oh, I, I think, frankly, anyone, any scientist who chooses to become uh, a part of an advisory role to get to take an advisory role to government has to recognise they are already part of the political process. The idea that they can somehow objectively, uh, you know, offer advice in an apolitical way is a fantasy. I mean, for one thing, they can only then uh, we saw in the pandemic, too. They can only offer advice on the policy options that they're being asked to model or think about. So, you know, no. No one in early 2020 was uh, telling the government this was what will happen if you uh, have a lockdown because a lockdown wasn't an option on the table until Mm. the last minute. So, you know, I think already as a scientist, um, the kind of, you know, the the options that you're giving and the scientific advice that you're giving is already politically constrained and politically influenced. So I think, you know, any scientist taking on those roles has to be realistic that they're entering politics. What an interesting take, author, writer and broadcaster Philip Ball from Moncrief. In Case You Missed It, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Now, this week, documentary on News Talk explores the life and times of the great Margaret McCurtain, historian, activist and nun. Here's a short clip. That was very disturbing. I had just gone into UCD. I had um, been on a seminar, you know, uh, and it wasn't controversial. It was just, uh, uh, it wouldn't be controversial in the early 60s. It was just a discussion on the place of this church in Ireland in the politics of, of the country. 
but he didn't like it and he um, phoned my mother general and said that he um, didn't seem to like the tone of what I was saying and that he wanted all my notes so that I could that he could scrutinize them and obviously censure them so um, I was quite upset uh, it came on a Sunday night. I was lecturing the next day, teaching. I was quite upset. What do I do? So, thankfully, I had a very nice uh, prioress in Dominican Hall. And she said, let me handle this. So, whatever way she told him, she didn't write to him, she told me. She told him to buzz off. And that was it. I remember that very clearly as being an important, an important marker in my life. You know, that sometimes you need a champion... Do you feel yourself as a champion towards women's history? No, I don't. I don't feel anything about it, not at all. You've witnessed such a change, actually. When you think of the changes in Ireland and the change that the role the church has. Yeah, we could see it happening, you see. It was just on the, on the eve of Vatican Council. Like, it was a generation looking back on them. We still, those of us who are still alive, we meet and we talk about what an unusual generation we were. We weren't radical, though we did give support to the um, student revolution of the late 1960s. In fact, I gave our support to those students when they were objecting to the fact that they were not represented on the um, governing body of the university where they were paying their tuition and where they were participating in the life of the university, but in a passive way. What an inspirational woman from The Troublesome Nun on Documentary on News Talk. Now, you might remember an emotional interview we had back in August with Omid Ahmadi, the Irish Afghani, got stuck in Afghanistan with his wife and two daughters, all of whom are Irish citizens, when the Taliban took over. They'd been on a rare family visit to the country. Their future, very uncertain, and naturally and understandably, they were very scared. But fortunately, Omid and his family were among those evacuated last week. He joins us now. Uh, Omid, great to talk to you and great to hear you're back in Ireland. How, How does it feel to be back in Ireland, back home? Thank you very much, Shane, for having me here. It feels great and relief uh, that we are back home, thanks to our uh, Irish authorities back in Abu Dhabi, with tremendous uh, work and tireless uh, work that they have done. Fantastic, the way we were. Uh, they gave us hospitality back in Qatar, and the way we it was organised. It was fantastic to be home. Now you've I, I'm I'm I can only imagine you've probably had a really nerve wracking, frightening uh, n- number of weeks. Uh, how did it happen that you finally got home? Well, uh, they were working with partners, mainly with Qatar, uh, to organize a flight for uh, foreign citizens such as us, uh, and. They were waiting for opportunity to come, and the minute the, it came, they grabbed it, and uh, luckily we are here. Uh, being there was uh, uncertain, uh, not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, but uh, luckily we got out. Did, did you worry at any stage that you mightn't get out, that you might have to stay there? Well, as things were uncertain, we didn't know if there would be any flight or if we had to take any other route. But uh, yeah, we were worried a lot until the plane took off the ground. Uh, We were uncertain if we would be able to get out. When we last spoke uh, spoke to you, uh, Omid, you were particularly fearful for your wife's brother. Just remind us uh, as to why that was and, and, and tell us how he's doing. Well, uh, see, whoever have worked with the previous government uh, are now at risk, especially it was uh, the my brother-in-law. Uh, I mean, uh, his line of work was working with the previous government uh, uh, in a high rank, and uh, uh, they are mainly target, uh, although they have said it in the papers and news that they're not saying anything, but they're secretly targeted and looking for them uh, to get their revenge, basically. 
Okay, very, very worrying uh, indeed for, for him and, and indeed for you. Tell us, what, what was life, because you were there for obviously a number of weeks while the Taliban had, had taken control, what was life like? Had things changed pretty dramatically? Uh, compared to what it was, it certainly had changed, uh, not in a positive way. Uh, people were worried about uh, their lives, their future, and definitely the women uh, rights, uh, especially in regards to education. They were in completely dark uh, days because uh, yet there was no uh, specific deadline for when the schools or the universities for women will be reopened. Uh, Again, uh, no work, no jobs. Uh, those who had their own money in the banks, there was no bank system. So people will be queuing for hours to get their own money to, uh, from the bank. Okay. And okay. you would have been lucky if you would get the, your turn on the same day. Very difficult, very, very difficult. Uh, good to be home, good to be back in Ireland. Happy, yeah. really relieved. Okay. Uh, especially for my young daughters. Shane Coleman on News Talk Breakfast. On Saturday, writer and podcaster Stephanie Preisner joined Anton Savage on The Anton Savage Show. Here's a short clip. So when at the end of this process they come out and say, OK, we have a, a diagnosis, this is um, what you have or whatever is the, the correct term, is that a relief? Is Does it change how you view yourself? What effect, if any, does it have on you? Um, it's, part of it is a relief and then it's this sort of a big fear as well, like... Um, it was a it was a shock, but it wasn't at all a surprise, and that's also been my experience of sharing the news with other people who know me. They're like, oh, "All right, that makes sense." Um, but then you sort of go back and look at things through this autistic lens and say, "Oh, that's what that was." You know, that time in my childhood where I wore my coat into the sea because I didn't want to be cold. <laughs> that was me taking things literally, and that's a, you know, um, and it allows me to have language. It's been a relief because it allows me to have language for things that I didn't have language for. So, you know, before if I was on, say, I'd be on the Late Late Show for something, and the next day, I I wouldn't be able to talk. And people, other would say to me like, oh yeah, I'm always exhausted after late night. It's like, no, no, this isn't exhaustion. I can get up, I can walk around, I can go for lunch, but I can't speak. Like I can speak in monosyllables, yes, no, but to try and form a sentence is too much. And now I know that that's called shutdown and it's very, very normal and typical for autistic people. And it's because of, if you think of energy accounting and energy balance, you've just gone too much into the red and you just don't have the reserves. And is this a bit of a challenge, do you think, in, in how other people interpret it? Because I remember talking to Sam Harris about this from, from As I Am, that they, he runs the, the um, Autism Advocacy Adam, group. yeah, he's amazing. Uh, sorry, Adam, you're right, sorry. Um, and one of the things that he said was that, is, that the lucidity with which you can discuss the condition, to use that term, makes people think that you're therefore able to control it. Yes, and that, that is, that's something that I found when telling people, like people would say, they tilt their head and they'd be like, oh, but you must be very high functioning. And, you know, that's kind of dangerous because, um, you know, to say that I am high functioning and therefore that's good means that to be low functioning is somehow not good. And that's, you know, on one end, a barrier to understanding and care and support on the high spectrum, if, if you're using those terms, and a barrier to opportunity and understanding on the low spectrum. And I do think it's because people talk about the spectrum of autism and you're on the spectrum. And I think they think of it like like a continuum, like a rainbow, let's imagine. But for me, and I don't know, like I haven't, this is not autism speak, this is just how I imagine it in my head. Let's imagine that it's like a sound desk, like you might have in front of you at a radio station, and each of the things is a fader. So on each of the faders, you might have different needs. So Ability to make eye contact, ability to process sound, ability to process light, uh, verbal communication, non-verbal communication, um, ability to tolerate change, the, the whole gamut. And for each individual autistic person, those faders are at different levels. So for me, I can make eye contact so that fader might be pretty low, but I am pretty bad in social situations because I feel like everyone has a script that I don't have and... 
and that can be kind of alarming and, and stressful. So that might be pretty high for me. And that is the spectrum. So to and s- now that you know that, are you in any way better able to deal with it? Or do you just sort of nod and say, okay, and now I'm back to where I was, only with the term? Um, no, it's diff- It's it's sort of, to me, it feels sort of like empowering in the same way that a few months ago I also went for, I was having loads of allergies and I went for an allergy test and I learned that I'm actually allergic to, well, lots of things, tree pollens, cats, but milk. So now when I go into a coffee shop and I ask for an oat milk latte, I feel a sense of like, actually, I'm allergic. This is not a millennial <laughs> preference, you know? So I can feel like, okay, I'm, I'm bad. I can so, stand over my oat I milk. I can stand over this awkward conversation <laughs> because I am struggling right now, you know? And it just feels like, oh, there's not something wrong with me. I am autistic. And the only reason I seem like there is something less than is because I am being measured by neurotypical, which is, you know, with neurotypical, by a neurotypical metric that I can't reach. But there's actually nothing wrong with me. And when I'm around other autistic people, I, I'm, I'm fine. Can I ask you one final thing? Do you worry now that you have said it, that people will view you differently or interact with you differently? Yeah, really severely. That's why my heart rate, like my, my Fitbit thinks that I've done a full morning of exercise this morning and I've just been sitting. I'm very nervous. Um, because, you know, like I'd be on, I'd be on radio panels with you and people are always like, oh, Stephanie, you love the guards and you love rules and you're such a, you're so pro-establishment. You're mad, you know? And I feel like, well, obviously I'm going to love rules. I'm autistic. And now that if people know that, they're going to be like, oh God, we can't mock her for the fact that she loves the rules, you know? But I've always been autistic and I want people to be able to, I, 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 I'm, I have support so that I'm learning what I need and I'll ask for what I need. If whether that's like, can we have this conversation somewhere that's a little bit quieter because I'm struggling to concentrate on what you're saying because the guy in the coffee shop is banging on the coffee. Um, I can ask for what I need and if I don't ask for something, then you just go ahead and treat me like you've always done. And how did people react when they, when the people that you have told, what reaction did you get? Most people have been very understanding. Uh, some have uh, it's been different. Like some people have done the, ah, you must be very mild or uh, you're, we're all a little bit autistic, which is frustrating. But I know that it's coming from a place of never having seen someone like me being autistic. And that's why authentic, authentic autistic representations on TV and media are really important. And that's sort of why I'm, why I'm saying this now. Um, and, and then other people have just been kind of dismissive of it and, being dismissive of it is to be dismissive of who I am as a person, so that really hurts. The wonderfully frank and direct Stephanie Preisner from The Anton Savage Show. And of course, you can tune into Anton every Saturday morning from 9 to 11. Does Superman now represent everyone? No, Superman was Macho Man. He was our hero. And that's not to say that gays can't be, but there was never, ever a hint of him ever being. And I just think we're carrying on to... But this Too is much Superman's this. son and he's taking over from his dad. Oh, Superman's son, that's a different story. Superman's son, that's grand. I thought we were going back rewriting history. So it's Clark not Clark, Kent. it's actually okay. John Kent. Okay, fine. I didn't fine. know he had a son. Neither did I. Well, it's a brand new comic that isn't okay. out yet. Oh, no, no, that's okay. That, that, that's suitable for everybody. everybody going forward. Whereas I thought if we were going back historically rewriting Superman, I would have thought, oh, come on. If he's happy... Then. So if Superman's happy? Yeah, if he's happy in himself and that's who he is, then Just, just like not? in real life? Yeah, in re- yeah. And do you think Superman now represents so many young people that he didn't before? Yeah, because that's the way the rules go now, isn't it? Should we even care if Superman is gay or bi? Um, no, I think it does spread like a positive message because in this generation now, like you can just see there's so much change going on. So I think it is good and like for younger kids that may be questioning themselves. They could be like, oh, look... If they're seeing this and it's like a general thing, like in a movie that like like Superman is a general character, if he sees this, or um, if they see it, like it could, they could be like, oh yeah, maybe I am like that or whatever. But it means they can kind of explore themselves a little bit more as well. So, so it you, would be good. You think it's good? Yeah. That there's this new yeah. character, this yeah. new Superman in a new comic. Yeah, I think it'll be like it does spread a positive message. I know a lot of people won't agree, but like it's not going to do any harm either. Like. Yeah, I definitely welcome that with open arms. I feel like a younger audience needs... It's good for them to see this and be normalised in media. I think it's a good idea and good influence for younger people. They deserve to be more represented in these types of media and everything like that, so I think it's a great step forward. 
I don't think young people care too much for, you know, one way or the other, whether it's a story. So for them, they're not going to care? Does it totally normalise it They didn't grow up in a world where, where it was illegal to be gay, did they? So <laughs> I think they'll be OK with it. The parents might not be, but the kids will be all right. There's all different types of persons in the world these days, and it's good for the kids to see that kind of different type. Um, it's only a comic, really, at the end of the day as well. It's a, it's a character that kids watch, and it can be whatever they want it to be. I think it's right in this day and age, you know. These men can't help the way they are, just the way they were born. So I agree totally with it. Nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing. I agree with it. I have good friends who are in the gay community, that, and they're great people. So it's just terrible the way they're treated in this day and age. You can't go around the roads. I've heard people shouting at a couple. He just put his arm around and gave him a kiss on the cheek and he abused that chap guy. So there's still homophobic oh, abuse, well, of course abuse in the it street. is. Of course, I think it's getting worse and it's disgraceful. So, so you think it's good that Superman um, has come out as bi? I don't see anything wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe some parents might like it for their children because I know my own grandsons, they love it. But like, some parents might agree with it, but times we're living in so get on with it it's a free world isn't it if he wants to be gay he can be gay I don't think I'd be buying it so I wouldn't but more power to them if they are gay right like no harm like what does it matter <laughs> it shouldn't make any difference no still the same fella like like what difference does it make really um, I definitely welcome it I think it's a positive movement and um, like it's not something to make any sort of big deal about I suppose just normalise things as much as possible I think it's fine, absolutely fine it'll make younger people um, maybe enjoy it more kind of see themselves in it more just whatever whatever goes is grand I don't really mind, Jeremy, at the end of the day you probably still like them yeah. do you have friends that now feel a little bit more represented today? I'd say so, yeah well, it's not a bridge too far, in my opinion. I think it's about time. We have to move with the times. I'm an older person who would have had more rigid views, but you have to unbend and accept people for what they are and who they are, and they're all good people. So if it helps people to be brave enough to come out and admit that they're of a different gender, that's fine by me. I don't have a problem with it at all. So you think, great. I think it's a good thing, yes. I think it's a good thing. I think people are becoming more empowered and they're more becoming more brave and they're, be, they're becoming more able to speak out, which I think is important. So more people will probably love I agree. Man. I agree that more people will, will approve of it. I do believe they will. I do believe they will. Henry McKean reporting. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Issues around recruitment and retention in the health sector are nothing new, but there is growing concern that many parts of rural Ireland are being left without critical services. Dr Patrick Malone worked as a GP in Sneem in South Kerry for 34 years. Recently, he had to come out of retirement for two weeks to serve the people of the area as no one else was available. It's quite an onerous task, really. Although the population is relatively small, the on-call commitment is huge. What steps did you take in the lead-up to your retirement to ensure that Sneem had a GP in place? Well, I was very concerned that I wouldn't be the last general practitioner in Sneem. So I gave the HSE a long notice uh, of my intentions. Fortunately, the patients decided that they were going to run a campaign to pressurise the HSE to ensure that an appointment was made. And this was very successful in getting signatures. Although no Irish person expressed any interest in in taking over the practice, there was a very strong commitment locally to ensure that an appointment would be made. Following the successful recruitment campaign before Dr Malone's retirement in 2017, Dr Hernan Ganzo was appointed to Sneem. He cares for a catchment area of up to 1,000 people. I liked rural medicine and I'm not really interested in practice in a big city, what I was doing in, in Spain. Could you describe how heavy the workload can be, your one man? It could be demanding in the aspect that you need to be available constantly. Do you feel a responsibility sometimes that you're the only doctor in the village, that you have to be available 24-7? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And, And sometimes it's hard. A sense of vital responsibility to the area as Dr Ganzo is often on call to be available at any hour. People living here are well aware of the important role GPs play in the community. I think there could be more, like we have a great GP here in Sneem, 
he's a man, okay? So, like, women sometimes want women healthcare workers. And, you know, like, we had real trouble to recruit the doctor here in Sneem. Do you think there's enough healthcare services in the area? I, if you go looking for them, I do, yes. Yes, I do, yeah, yeah. It's just I had an experience of having to find a new doctor once I got down here for the lockdown. And I found them wonderful. Would you be worried about the future now for, I suppose, these areas attracting health professionals? Yes, it's a bit isolated here, right? (laughs) Work is being done on the ground to improve the situation. There are hopes to open a primary care service in the South Kerry town of Carasabine within the next year. Local Fianna Fáil councillor Norman Moriarty says GPs in rural Ireland are under too much pressure. There was a time when you had six GPs covering the area between Carsevine, Valencia, Port McGee, Balanskelegs, Waterville, out as far as Cahar Daniel. That area is now covered by three GPs. And each of those three GPs is in the older age bracket. They wouldn't mind me saying that. Effectively, they are each of them considering their retirement in the next number of years. So we have a critical situation in our hands. And I've been working with the HSE to see if we can actually you know, put structures in place that will attract replacement GPs. Does this play a factor then in people's decision to move to the area or even to stay in the area if these services... Not there. Oh, there are. I mean, when you think about people trying to come back, we'll say the young people who grow up here and go to college and think about where they're going to live for the rest of their lives. Essential services factors into their thinking about where they're going to locate themselves and their families. People who, who want to retire here, maybe from other countries, how far they are from you know critical care services factors into a decision that they might make. So there's no doubt about that. Josh Crosby reporting for News Talk Breakfast. Now, this week, Talking History explores the life and literary legacy of English poet and philosopher Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Here's Patrick Gagan. Jeffrey, you've written a, a hugely successful biography of, of their daughter, Sarah Coleridge, uh, subtitled Her Life and Work. And she, of course, was a, a poet, a theologian. And she was also someone who was very successful at, I think, defending and presenting Coleridge's image to a, a later audience in the 19th century. That's right. And, you know, the the ironic thing is that many thought that it was going to be Coleridge's son, Hartley, who would really be the next generation's genius and inherit so much of the positive intellectual energy that he had. But it turned out that Hartley, though he certainly did some wonderful things, also inherited some of those negative traits. And it turned out instead that Sarah was the real inheritor. And as Rosemary said, that relationship was somewhat strained, right? I mean, he was gone for so many years. In fact, there's a story that at one at one time, a portrait was made of her uh, in the role of the Highland girl. And it was showed uh, to Coleridge, uh, her father. And at first he didn't recognize that it was his own daughter. Uh, what a stunning thing. And yet in her later years, when she married, she moved near her father and they restored their relationship. And what's so fascinating is the way that Sarah then took up her father's work, especially at the very end of his life and after his death and became really uh, responsible for much of his legacy and made that sort of her own vocation. Her, Her work was to take care of his legacy and present it for the next generation. There's these lovely lines in one of her own poems, which are really fascinating I think as well. But there's this wonderful uh, two lines that say, Father, no amaranth's heir shall wreathe my brow, enough that round thy grave they flourish now. And there's this sense of her own awareness that she would never quite be a sort of champion, that she would never be the victor. And yet it was enough for her that she could uh, make his legacy something that would go on. And I think she really devoted herself to that and, and in many ways, I think she's quite responsible for defending him on different counts, such as the plagiarism. And she took up uh, the study of German simply so she could read through the philosophers and understand what they said and then check his works in what many consider even today to be the sort of founding work of defense of her father. And it was that sort of labor of love for her father that I think proved all the difference for his legacy. Some fascinating insights there from Talking History with Patrick Egan. And of course, you can tune into Patrick every Sunday evening from 7 to 8. On Monday, Roddy Joyle joined Kieran Cudahy on the hard shoulder. So if it, it helped you to deal with, as you say, as you described it, 
lockdown as a writer did it did it help you to deal or to cope or understand lockdown as a person because I suppose we were trying no it didn't no no I was never like that I used there are little snippets I suppose of personal life might get me rolling but that becomes irrelevant really really quickly and it had no if you like it had no um, I never felt better having finished a story if you like it didn't deal with me <laughs> psychologically in any sense at all. But as I said, it did keep me literally occupied and also occupied in terms of working out what happens next, mm. how's this story going, and being able to use observation rather than just, you know, observing people walking alone during that time. It seems more significant than would be, would would have normally been the case and hopefully in a couple of years or even a year will be the case. Yeah. But seeing somebody walking along with a certain stride that suggested almost desperation perhaps, I begin to wonder, you know. And even um, I'd come home with little details. Having walked along, I, I live in Clontarf and I'd walk along the promenade, you know, and I heard a guy sing an opera arias. This in is one of the uh, Masks, the story, that story. in the book. Yeah. So I said, I'll, I'll use that because it was, it was brilliant actually, mm. you know. And then there was another guy playing the Illin Pipes, a much younger man down the road. I said, well, I'll use that as well, if only to get the term Illin Pipes into the story. But it also, <laughs> I thought, like, it's, it's that sense of, you know, what they call fleshing it out. Yeah. So I was able to use these um, glimpses and moments for the material for the story without it being in any way autobiographical. But, um, you know, as I said, it was just, it was ter- having made a decision to write not just a story, but a gang of stories and got in touch with my publisher and my agent and suggested that I'd write a collection about what we were going through without us knowing when it was going to end. I don't think anybody anticipated really on a human level it was going to last this long, you know. No. Um, but it, it was great to have that creative energy, if you like, and a bit of enthusiasm at the other end. And I was sending off the stories as I finished them and getting and the comments back. It is, you know, I'd say that take that mask story again that you were yeah. talking about, uh, the, the, the man marching around different parts of Clontarf yeah. within 2K, then 5K, then 20K, <laughs> and then back down to 5K. Um, is that something that you do anyway as a person? I mean, do, do, do you sit in a cafe and see someone walk past and kind of imagine their life story or what's going on? Or it's was that good, just an exercise for the book? It's a good question, really, because the honest answer is no. And the honest answer is also yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not any... It, you know, I'd never have a notebook up open or a note, uh, whatever you call them, on my phone. Mm. I don't work that way and I've never I've never had a conversation with anybody where I think oh I could use that I'd never think in those terms I wouldn't want to hear myself or thinking in those terms but actually sometimes you see something that inevitably sparks off the imagination I remember when I was a teacher when I started in 1979 and the class sizes were much bigger then you know I had 37 in one class and you're looking at 37 faces when they're all in at the same time, looking back up at you. And like each had a each had a potential story. And they might all be, you know, you know, these little first years straight in from primary school, all of them looking as if they'd been cleaned with a Brillo pad that morning, except for one or two. And I'd be looking at the one or two and wondering what's going on there. But I, I didn't rush home to write about it or anything. But I do, I, now and again, I can't think offhand now of anything in recent times that got me thinking in terms of stories. But... I do, you know, I suppose as well as that, at this stage of my life, I do a lot more looking backwards than forwards. There's not an awful lot that I'd want to see in the future, but there's <laughs> loads. There's loads of material from the past, if you know. Mm. So if I've been, I'm writing a novel at the moment, I feel confident enough about, if you like, the next couple of years to <laughs> write a novel, <laughs> a long form thing, you know. And even if yeah. things go drastically long wrong, my character will be able to live through that. So uh, as opposed to trying to catch up. But I noticed that when she responds to things, I'm delving back, you know, to uh, phases of my life and not necessarily using them, but allowing, seeing if I can look back and look at something, glimpse it as it was, and then in a way give it to the fictional character. So, um, and I I wouldn't have been aware of that when I was living the experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. 
the great Roddy Doyle from the Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. Okay, I'm going to leave you with now Owen Sheen, Kenny Cunningham, and Nathan Murphy on Off the Balls Crappy Quiz. Have a great weekend. Uh, can you name a Republic of Ireland player with 70 caps or more? 7 0. Kevin Colban. Kevin Colban is one. Uh, next up is Adrian. Shea Given. Shea Given is another. Nathan. John O'Shea. John O'Shea. Steve Staunton. Steve Staunton. Robbie Keane. Yeah. Who was it? Nathan. Nathan. Was it me? Yeah. Uh, over 70 caps. 70. Uh, James McLean. James McLean. Uh, uh, Duffers Damien Duffers correct um, does he have 70 caps Gary Breen no oh, oh. <laughs> this will go on for about a half an hour now this is, I, I should <laughs> oh, only no. miss one, one round and be straight back Nathan can I think of one more Niall Quinn Niall Quinn correct Kenny Uh. I'm gonna go with um Jesus, I'm struggling. Over there. I saw Big Paul. I'm not did Paul, Big Paul I'm not this isn't my answer by the way, I'm just throwing <laughs> it out there. <laughs> Big Paul you would think, wouldn't you, Paul? Well, is that your answer, Kenny? Come on. No, I'm gonna take that one back. Paul McShane, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm gonna go with um uh from my day Oh, it's gotta be uh Gas Kelly. No. Game over. Gary Kelly. Gary Kelly does not wow. have 70 caps for no Ireland. No way. Back from your day, Kenny. Kenny Cunningham has over 70 <laughs> caps for the Republic of Ireland. You are joking me. Kenny How many Cunningham. caps have you got? How many <laughs> caps have you got? I, don't, I, don't, I, can't, I can't count How many caps them. I don't count half something. them. Oh, you are joking me. I don't, I don't, I don't have all half the them. figures. I don't count half them. Get ready to Gary Kelly yet. Uh, I'll, I'll check that up in a sec. Uh, Kenny Cunningham ended oh, up with Kenny, uh, 72 Kenny, caps. Kenny, ah, Kenny, uh, seriously. Would you not know Gary that Kelly. off the top of your head? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Were you not just thinking? Or did Gary you, Kelly with 52. Do you know? Burning caps. When he says 72, are you going, oh, yeah, no, I know I have 72? Uh, no, I knew I knew I didn't around. I, I knew I wasn't but, thinking that way, to be honest with you. Yeah. If you ask me many caps I've got, I know I've got in and around that, but. Wow. We just got through the full list in alphabetical order. Packy Bonner, Liam Brady, Tony Cascarino, Kenny Cunningham, Damien Duff, Richard Dunn, Shay Given, Ray Houghton, Robbie Keane, Kevin Kilban, Shane Long, James McLean, Aidan McGeady, Paul McGrath, Kevin Moran, John O'Shea, Frank Stapleton, Steve Staunton, Andy Townsend, Niall Quinn and Glenn Whelan. The scores after that round are Nathan on one point, Kenny on minus three, Adrian on minus three. How the hell does that even work? How does how is that scoring even work? That makes <laughs> no sense as to what the just that in case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Go sin free with Harvey Norman and break free from long and expensive network contracts. Choose the phone you want from brands like Apple, Samsung, Xiaomi, and more. Get the Xiaomi Mi 11T smartphone with superb 108 megapixel camera. Now 399 save 150 euro. Or get the Samsung S20 FE smartphone and upgrade your view with the large 6.5 inch display. Only 569 save 100 euro. Shop in store or online today. Go sim free. Go Harvey Norman. Go!